turn in your Bible, please, <clears throat> to the little book of Esther. Esther chapter 4, verse 14. Esther chapter 4, verse 14. Esther has a very unusual position in our Bible and in Jewish history. The Feast of Purim, which is still observed today, uh, has its founding or origin in the book of Esther. And we want to look at one little verse and then bring God's Word today on this subject. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank Thee for the privilege of being in God's house on this important Sunday. We thank You for this month of May when high schools and colleges and universities are observing graduation, commencement time, when young people will march out from the halls of learning into important responsible places in leadership positions. May God bless them and bring strength and grace and comfort and direction. And we pray that there will be young people rise to the occasion in times like these to say, here is our life, we place it on the line for God. We pray thou wilt meet needs today, some who are brokenhearted, some who are in trouble, some who are in mourning, others who are sick, and everyone here who needs the grace of Jesus. May thy Holy Spirit disturb and draw some who have never been saved to know Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God and confessing our sins and our needs. Amen. In Esther chapter 4, verse 14, these are the words of Mordecai as he spoke through a messenger to Esther who was the queen of the land. Queen, was, queen Esther was a Jewish lady. God had placed her in an unusual position with King Ahasuerus. It was a law in that day that nobody, not even the king's wife or the queen of the land, could present herself or himself before the king unless he was invited. Now, if the whims of the king were good whims, and the queen or a subject of the king should come before him to present a special petition or a need. If the king held out the scepter, that meant that he was in a good humor and he would be open to what was to be said. If he did not, then his bodyguards and henchmen would take that person, whoever it was, whether it was his queen or a common person of the streets, and take them out and execute them. That was a strange kind of a law. <clears throat> now with that in mind, we would also need to remember that Haman was a wicked henchman of the king. And he had in mind that because he was so close to the king, everybody had to do obeyance to him. Everybody had to bow and scrape before him. And he would go out from the king's palace 
And there was a certain Jew who was the uncle of Queen Esther. Of course, Haman did not know this. And as uh, Haman would go out of the palace, Mordecai would not bow before him. Because you may or may not know that the Jews didn't bow before anybody except the Lord God. And so when Mordecai, when Haman would go out and he would notice this man here, a Jew, and he wouldn't bow, wouldn't uh, show what Haman thought was undue respect he needed to have, it addled him. It became very vehement. Finally, he wrote a petition to the king, and he falsely accused Mordecai and the Jews of refusing to obey or show due respect to King Ahasuerus. And he had it all finalized and was ready to bring the king's signature to the petition that would mean all the Jews of the kingdom would be exterminated. Isn't it interesting how all through the years there have been dictators and leaders and kings and potentates who wanted to get rid of the Jews. Hitler tried this. Stalin tried this. Others have tried it through the years. God grant that America shall remain a friend to the Jews and to Israel. No nation has ever prospered who turned his back on the Jews or on Israel. And so Haman was about to get it all fixed up and Mordecai of course knew about it and all the Jews knew about it but Queen Esther did not know this. And so Mordecai <clears throat> sent a message. He couldn't get to Queen Esther himself but he sent a message and he detailed what was going to happen and how all the Jews were going to be exterminated. And he, he said in the message, Queen Esther, even though you're the queen of the land, your neck will not be spared. Everybody is going to pay this penalty, have to pay, have to pay for it with his life, unless you, Queen Esther, can go into the king and make a petition. Now this put the queen on quite a spot. You remember what I said? Anybody who went to the king uninvited would be subject to the death penalty, even the queen. And so Mordecai carries on several messages with Queen Esther, and finally she gets to the point where she says, all right, I'm going to do it. If I perish, I perish. I want you to have all the Jews of the land have a prayer meeting and fast and pray that God will intervene. And here was Mordecai's message to Esther. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their relief and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. In other words, Mordecai had faith that God would not permit the Jews to be exterminated. But thou, Queen Esther, and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Queen Esther, you've been placed in an unusual position. Never before 
has a Jewess been queen of Persia? And you're queen. Who knows but what God has placed you in this position for such a time as this. An old man traveling a lonely highway came at the evening, cold and gray, to a chasm, vast and deep and wide, through which was flowing a troublesome tide. The old man crossed in the twilight dim. The sullen stream had no fears for him. But he turned when he reached the other side and built a bridge to span the tide. Old man said a fellow pilgrim near, you're wasting your strength with building here. Your journey will end with the ending day. You never will pass this way. You've crossed the chasm deep and wide. Why build you a bridge at eventide? The builder lifted his gray old head. Good friend, in the path I have come, he said, there follows after me today a youth whose feet must pass this way. This chasm which has been as naught to me to that fair-haired boy may a pitfall be. He too must pass in the twilight dim. Good friend, I build this bridge for him. Now this has been the attitude of moms and dads. This has been the attitude of grandmas and grandpas. This has been the attitude of the church. This has been the attitude to some degree of the schools. Bridge builders to help those who follow in the train to get across safely when the tough times come. And this month of May, men and women are graduating from high school, are graduating from college and from universities, and one of our men is graduating from the FBI Academy. And all of the training and all of the investments that have been placed in their lives have been like bridges built over spans to help them go on to accomplish the purpose for which God has brought them to this point. In a very real sense, the torch is being passed. And young people who are graduating from high school and college today are going to have to turn back and start building some bridges themselves. Contingent upon the responsibility that will be yours as a graduate and as going into the responsibilities of life will be that important factor of building a bridge behind you to help somebody else that's coming along. Now that's what Mordecai was saying to Esther. Esther, who knows? but what you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. A great university president is the author of this thoughtful paragraph. Your first duty in life is toward your after self. So live that your after self, the man, woman you ought to be, may in his time be possible and actual. Far away in the years, he is waiting his turn. His body, his brain, his soul are in your hands. He cannot help himself. What will you leave for him? Will it be a brain unspoiled by lust or dissipation? A mind trained to think and act? 
A nervous system true as a dial in its response to the truth about you? Will you let him come as a man among men in his own time? Or will you throw away his inheritance before he has a chance to touch it? Will you turn over to him a brain distorted, a mind distressed, a will untrained to action, a spinal cord grown through with the evil grass of that vile harvest we call wild oats? What chance, boy or girl, what chance, young man, young maiden, has the man or woman out there in yonder year, your tomorrow self, if you play fast and loose with life's values, its sacred responsibilities, and its priceless opportunities, which come not again? Who knows but what you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this? John Esau says there are seven revolutions faced by young people today. Number one, pressures upon youth to succeed so the parents can brag on them. Number two, ambiguity of adult behavior. Dad cheats on his taxes. The preacher preaches against drinking, but mom and dad keep it hidden in their icebox. We had a family visit our church one time, and I went to visit them. And uh, the lady asked me, Preacher, you don't ever preach about adultery, do you? I said, I didn't hear you preach about it this morning. I like that. I said, you don't ever preach about it, do you? Well, I said, yes, I do. Well, she said, we're looking for a church that never mentions that. So we probably won't be very happy at your church. They moved on. A third revolution is legalistic morality. Where the focus is on do's and don'ts rather than on the grace and love of God in our hearts. Now I believe in standards. But I don't believe we ever ought to look down our nose at somebody who does not meet our standards. But it would be foolish for us never to mention standards. I've had people say, well, preacher, you ought not to say this or this or this. That might offend somebody who wants to do that thing. The only way people today will ever hear the truth of the Word of God and of biblical standards is to hear it from the pulpit. We can't look to the Congress. We can't look to the Chamber of Commerce. We can't look to the City Commission. We can't look to the White House. We must look to the pulpit. Frankly, the hope of moral and spiritual revival in America today is the pulpits of the United States. And if they fail, we fail. At the same time, legalistic morality is not that which changes men's hearts. But after men's hearts get changed, we need to know right from wrong. We need to hear the Word of God concerning this. And then there's a fourth revolution John Esau mentions, and that's the sexual revolution. We don't even have to talk about it. I'm going to speak some more about that tonight at the service in part two of spiritual formula that will bless our families.
But we're in a sexual revolution. So that the things that used to be not talked about at all are now broadcast on television and radio and in common conversation. Not only are they talked about, but they're practiced in gross form. And so John Esau says one of the great revolutions young people face today is this sexual revolution. What to do about it? Should we be caught up in it and do what everybody else is doing because that's what do, that's what, just do what comes naturally? Or should we stem the tide? Should we dare to be different? Who knows but what thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then there's a fifth revolution, the education revolution. Some time ago, a person could get by, and in some degrees still, in some instances still, a person can get by without finishing high school. I know a person that became the head of a great, great uh, industrial firm here in America had only a third grade education. But a lot of drive, a lot of dedication, a lot of self-starter. But generally speaking today, a person needs to finish high school. And then he needs to finish college. And then if possible, he needs to get a master's degree. And I like to challenge our people to go on after a doctorate. Go as far as you can. Do not sin against your future self by failing in this matter of education. Sixthly, the difference between the dogma and practice of Christianity. A sixth revolution that is being faced today all over America, and all, especially in America, did you know that there's great revival going on in Korea, South Korea? There's great revival going on in Africa, even in nations that are being, being uh, politically bombarded by the communists. But in America, there's very little evidence of revival. In England, very little evidence of revival. In France, very little evidence of revival. There are some big crusades from time to time. Billy Graham captures the attention of a whole city, and I thank God for that when the city is made God-conscious through those great crusades. But as far as real spiritual revival, there is very little evidence because there's a big difference between the dogma of the Word of God and the Christian faith and the practice. We say we believe one thing and we practice another. And last of all, adults and young people seem to not know each other. They call it a generation gap, a breakdown in communication. In order to try to stem the tide, <laughs> this music has been a, a factor. And because parents do not quite understand what the music is saying, and they have such a desire to have a close communication with their teens, they back up a little bit 
and are afraid to say very much about the music, though they misunderstand it, they do not understand what it says, they don't understand its lyrics, they don't understand its lust, they don't understand all of the filth of it, but they back up and don't say anything because they say, well, that's one thing, maybe we could all get together. And so they go in and they just sort of hop along together with their kids on this stuff. When it's really fakery. Because the kids, if they have spiritual discernment at all, recognize what's in some of the music. Maybe not all of it, but some of it. And the parents don't understand it at all, and there is a communication breakdown. But the parents are scared to say anything, and so there's a revolution going on. Now I want to ask you, who knows but what thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? For these seven revolutions, to face such a time as this, to roll up your sleeves and say, by the grace of God, I'm going to be somebody who will do something about it in times like these. I dare us to do it. I just want to challenge us to do it. Listen to these statistics. Knowledge is doubling every 10 years. Printed material is doubling every 15 years. We have to read to keep up. Read volumes of things. We need to get the news magazines and read them. We need to get the newspapers and read them. We are done with the time when kids can just take up the sports page and read that and be ignorant of everything that's going on in our day. 70% of all medications have been developed since World War II. 80% of all the scientists who have ever lived in history are alive today. The laser beam was discovered in 1961. It measures the distance in space travel and other things. And frankly, it was not needed until it was discovered, and now we do not know how we ever got along without it. But this is a time of great lawlessness. 47 million divorces. 550,000 deaths from drunk driving. 23 million users of illegal drugs. 18 million babies killed by abortion. 9.5 million illegitimate births. 65% of all teens have sex before marriage. 17 million practicing homosexuals when God says He gave them up for that sin. 10 million alcoholics. Who knows but what thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Listen to this. You do not have to be old to accomplish something in life. Alexander the Great ascended the throne when he was 20 years old. He conquered the then known world when he was 33. George Washington was appointed adjutant general when he was 19 years old. He was sent at 21 as an ambassador to treat with the French. He was a colonel when he was 22. Lafayette was made general of the French army when he was 20 years old. Gladstone was in parliament when he was 22. Elizabeth Barrett Browning was proficient in Greek and Latin at age 12. William Cawford, William Cowper, the author of There Is a Fountain, published a volume of poems when he was 15 years old. 
Martin Luther started the Great Reformation when he was 29. I could go on. You, you know the picture. What I'm trying to say to you young people today, who knows but what you come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Don't look to somebody that's 70 or 80 or 60 or 50 or 40 and say, well, well I'm going to wait till I'm in my 30s, the prime of life, and I'll do something. Do it now. You may not even live to the prime of life. Get at it now. Paul had this in mind when he said in Romans 1.16 to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he said, that gospel has the power to change men's minds, their lives, and their destiny. Men's minds need to be changed. Communism seeks to convince man that he is basically a material creature. Socialism seeks to convince man that he is basically dependent upon the state. But the Bible teaches that man is basically selfish. He has thoughts that are turned inward and he elevates himself and he says, me and mine, I don't need anything else. And only Christ can come in and change man's mind about self so that he can say himself in relation to the perfectness of Jesus and recognize that he has sinned and come short of the glory of God and call upon the Lord to change his mind about self. And when Christ changes our mind about self, prejudice will melt away. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Christ can change man's mind about things. The importance of things will fade. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Power, wealth, position, security, popularity, clothing, housing, all the things you need. But you seek Jesus first. And so when Christ comes in, Paul says, Christ can change our mind about ourself and our needs and about God and about Christ. Who knows but what thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this, to have your mind changed and fixed on things eternal. Secondly, Christ can change our lives. Man's life is a product of man's mind. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. When God has changed man's mind, when this great dynamo has been blasted and men's minds are changed from self to others and from things to Christ, then 2 Corinthians 5 17 takes place, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. What we hated, we now love. The lady who once scoffed at church now quietly prepares herself for church on Sunday morning. Ebenezer Scrooge said, humbug, when he was wished Merry Christmas until the apparitions of Christmas past, present, and future came to his mind. And that morning, he threw up the window and he said, what, boy, what day is this, boy? Why, this is Christmas Day. And old Scrooge changed his actions. He said, Merry Christmas. Now, that's what happens when Christ comes into men's minds and our lives are changed by what Christ has done. The socialists tell of the blessing of socialism. Socialism can put a new coat on a man. But a Christian comes along and says, 
Jesus can put a new man in the coat. He changes our morals, our desires. We used to think it bothersome to give money to church. The preacher just preaching for money anyhow. But now, I love to tithe. I love for the offering plate to pass. I love to come to church on Sunday so I can place in God's offering plate a little portion of what He has given to me. He changed my mind about it. He changed my life about it. I have a new love for home, for church, for others, for a lost world. You know that old drag? That boy loved his girlfriend so much, he wrote her a letter and said, I love you more than words could ever tell. Why, I'd climb the highest hill to see you. I, I, I just, why, well, I would walk around the whole world just to be with you for five minutes. P.S. I'll be over to see you Saturday night if it don't rain. That's the way a lot of us are toward things of God and things of the church and things spiritual. But when Christ comes in, He changes our mind and our life and He changes our destiny. That's the most precious thing. But you see, our destiny cannot be changed until our mind or our, and our life is changed. Uh, people are wishing for a star when they say, well, if I just walk down the aisle and make some kind of profession of faith, I'll be okay and I can live any way I want to and do any way I want to and think any way I want to and still everything will be all right. That is a fading wish. Never be fulfilled. Because you see, our destinies are not really changed until our mind and our life is changed. For if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And my approach and my attitude is different. You know, before a person gets saved, he's corrected about something. He says, ha, I didn't do that. But when a person has really been saved and the Holy Spirit is dwelling in his heart and he's confronted with something, he says, well, I didn't mean to do that. I'm going to check up on it. If I did it, I'm really sorry. Because God changes our mind about things. You can just write it down. When you see some young people in the church or some young people maybe in your own home and they get all defensive and all up in the air, something is wrong in their heart. Because when Christ comes in, He changes the mind and the life. And when the mind and the life are changed, the destiny is changed. You see, you can't really get saved and live like the devil and go to heaven. Here's the reason. Not because a saved person can be lost after he's saved, but because you're saying that you're saved and you live like the devil is a lie. When you really get saved, Christ changes your mind, your thinking. He changes your lifestyle. Now, you may have some downdraft sometimes. You may go into a nosedive once in a while, but you'll pull out because the Holy Spirit is in the heart and life and mind of one who has genuinely been born again. As you start up again. Now really, God's plan is for us to be like a jet plane. Would you like to go out here to Nashville Airport and get on a jet plane? It goes like this. Man, I wouldn't want to be on that thing. If I could get off of it, I'd never get on it again. I like to get on a plane that goes like this. And boy, you sit there and you're all strapped in and you're scared and you wonder, and, and, but you're thankful it's going up, 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 up. 
And it looks like, you know, depending on where they're going, you go up, 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 and all of a sudden you feel this, and it starts going down to the airport. You've already traveled 500 miles. Now that's the way God's people ought to be. When you get on board the train going to heaven, you're going up, 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 and all of a sudden it's like going on one of those fast elevators in the Empire State Building. You go up, up, and all of a sudden it feels like you're going down, but really you're just stopping. And you get off, and there you are at the station called the City of God. You see, Christ changes our destiny. As masters of our fate, we're doomed to failure. Alexander conquered the world and sat down on the curbs of Babylon weeping because there were no more worlds to conquer. Napoleon marched to Russia only to fail and be exiled on St. Helena Island. Adolf Hitler ruled Europe and sought to take the whole world and died a suicide in his bunker in Berlin. Stalin gained a nation. He brought half the world under his hammer and sickle. And then they put him in a coffin and let people come by and look at him for a long time. And now do you know where he is? They don't have Stalin on display anymore. They've put him down under a concrete vault. You can't even look on his face anymore. And he's been defamed in the nation that he once ruled. But I want to tell you, these were all masters of their fate. Where are they today? He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. All the destiny of the world can ever offer is fame, wealth, and power, and the grave for the paths of glory lead but to the grave. But Christ can change all this and make our lives a spiritual pilgrimage from the cradle through the grave to God's perfect day beyond the sunset in the city of God. Who knows, young people, graduates from high school and college this year, but what thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this, to let Christ be magnified in your life so that you too can build bridges behind you and look back and see somebody following in your train on the road to success, to accomplishment, and to heaven through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment. Our Father, we thank Thee for the privilege of discussing this wonderful passage from God's Word. We pray that somebody here today, or those who listen by radio, would dare to say, perhaps I have come to this privileged position for such a time as this. I have come to this graduation. I have come to this time when my folks believe in me. I have come to this point of accomplishment for such a time as this, that I might in turn invest my life in the will of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. May we stand, please. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. This is God's invitation today. First of all, if you're here and you have never been saved, You've never yielded your heart to Christ. Would you just open your heart to Him today? Just say, Lord, I want Christ. I need Thee as my own Savior and Lord. 
and then come and take a stand. Let us help you from the Bible, show you how to give your heart to Christ, how to know for sure you're on your way to heaven. If you've already been saved, but you have not yet been baptized, would you come and take that stand for Christ? There's some here in this room who are Christians, and you know in your heart that God wants you to become part of this church. You need to come today and move your letter. There's some young people who have heard God tug at your heart. You've sensed that God has something for you to do. Would you present yourself to Him? God help you to do it as we begin to sing. Who will step out for the King, Christ Jesus? Will you come?